morning, friends and family. God bless you, each and every one. We are in Genesis chapter 8, studying. Um, and if you read it ahead of time, fine. You're, you know, that's good. I would hope that you would. But if you want to just go through the study with me, that's fine too. Two times is almost better than one if you have the time to do that. So, okay, we're going to start in Genesis 8, we're, uh, chap chapter 8, verse 1. And this is entitled, The God of New Beginnings. So, you know what? When anxious believers are searching the Bible for something encouraging to read, they're more likely to probably turn to Romans 8 rather than to Genesis 8. Because... Romans 8 is one of the most heartening, warm heartening chapters in scripture, while Genesis 8 describes God's basically mop-up generation after the flood. But the next time that you find yourself in a storm, Genesis 8 can give you new hope, it can give you encouragement, because the major theme of the chapter is renewal and rest after tribulation. Excuse me. So the chapter records the end of, the, of a storm and the beginning of new life and new hope for God's people and God's creation. So just consider what God does in, in Genesis 8 and take courage. God remembers his own. As we look at verse 8, one, uh, ver, chapter 8, verse 1a, when you're going through a storm, it's easy to feel forsaken. It's easy to feel shaken up. You know, uh, it's easy for thoughts to enter your mind, like, I think the Lord has forgotten me. Or, uh, where is God right now? Or, or, you know what, I don't feel the presence of the Lord. You know, we feel lonely, we feel abandoned. And, um, and, and it's an emotional time. And our emotions want to rise up. We feel sometimes forsaken. That's actually a normal human emotion that most of us have experienced whether whether we want to admit it or not we have experienced it at some time the bible says why do you stand afar off O lord the psalmist asked that why do you hide yourself in times of trouble in psalms 10 verse 1 and then paul confessed that his troubles in asia had been so severe that he almost gave up on life second corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 now how many times have some of us went through that place it's like I feel like just throwing my arms up and quitting you know some of us have been through that maybe not all of us but a good portion of us I believe have been so um, as Paul confessed that trouble in Asia and as it, had, it was so severe that he did almost give up on life. It, go to 2 Corinthians and read 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. And Jesus who experienced our human trials, all our human trials, cried from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God said that. He felt forsaken in his feelings, in his emotions. Right? Matthew 27, 46. Feeling desolate is nothing new to the people of God. 
But then they recall the song, God is still on the throne, you know, and he will remember his own. So the word remember in Genesis 8.1, it doesn't mean to call something to mind that, that might have been forgotten. But God can't forget anything because he knows the end from the beginning. So then rather it means to, to pay attention, to fulfill a promise, <clears throat> and act on behalf of somebody. For example, God's promise, quote, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. It means that God doesn't hold our sins against us, and he, he treats us he, and treats us as sinners. He does not do that. Certainly God knows what we've done, but because of our faith in Jesus, our sins are forgotten. So God deals with us through our sins. Or excuse me, he deals with us though our sins have never ever been committed. He remembers them no more. He remembers them against us no more. The Bible says to remember means to act on behalf of another. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot from destruction in Sodom in Genesis 19.29. Or maybe like the Lord remembered Rachel and Hannah and enabled them to conceive and to bear sons. And then the Lord remembered his covenant and he delivered the Jews from the bondage of Egypt in Exodus chapter 2. So to remember implies a previous commitment made by God and announces the fulfillment of that commitment. Noah, his family, and the animals, had they had been together in this ark for over a year, which is it's a lot of togetherness, right? But you know what? Did they ever get impatient with each other, I wonder, or with the animals? There's actually no record that God spoke to them after they had been, or after he had shut them into the ark. So possibly somebody in the family experienced an, an occasional fleeting fear. You never know. I'm We're human. You know, maybe they did experience a, a fear occasionally that maybe God didn't care for them anymore, or God did not only... Maybe he didn't remember them anymore. Maybe he forgot about them. But God not only remembered Noah and his family, but he also remembered the animals that were with them in the ark. And God God spared these all these animals, all these creatures. They could live on the renewed earth and they would reproduce after their kind. It was his desire that his creatures enjoy the earth and contribute to the happiness of the people. God had created in his own image. He had created the people in his own image. So as we're going to see later, the animals were included in God's covenant with Noah. So we can be sure that God never forgets, nor does he forsake his people. Not only because of his promises, but also because of his character. Because God is love. And where there's love, there's faithfulness. He can never 
deny himself. He can never deny his word for he is. He's the faithful God and he can never change because he's immutable, because he's perfect. God can't change for the better because he's holy already. He is everything. He's all in all. He can't change for the worse. We can depend on him no matter what our circumstances are or no matter how we feel even. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, according to chapter 7, verse 24, the flood reached its peak in 150 days and then the, the torrential rain and the eruptions of water from beneath the earth that had finally ceased. And then in chapter 8, verse 2, we see that during the next five months, God caused the water to receive, recede and leave the dry land behind. So where did the floodwaters go anyway? You know, we can never underestimate the power of moving water. It's possible that the flood greatly altered the contours even of the land and could have created new areas for the water to fill both on the surface of the earth and underground too. So since there were eruptions from beneath the earth in uh, chapter 7 verse 11, whole continents and mountain ranges could have risen and fallen, creating huge areas into which the water could spill. So the winds that God sent over the earth helped to evaporate the water and also also to move the water, move the water to places that God had provided, a God powerful enough to cover the earth with water. Listen, he's also wise enough to know how to dispose of, of it when, when it, the work is done. So centuries later, God's uh, wind would bring the locust into Egypt and later it would drive them into the sea in Exodus chapter 10. God's wind would also open up the Red Sea and make a dry path for the people of Israel as they left Egypt, right? And that is exactly what happened. So the stormy wind fulfills God's word, Psalms 148 verse 8. <clears throat> then on the seventh, seventh day, or 17th day of the seventh month. Let me get a sip of my coffee. I have throat problems throughout the spring season. I apologize for that. Just like today, the, <clears throat> the wind is blowing quite a bit and it kicks up a lot of stuff into the air. <clears throat> so okay where was I the wind brought yes made a way for the the children of Israel as they left Egypt the stormy wind fulfills God's word on the 17th day of the 7th month the ark rested on a peak in the mountains of Iraq located in modern Turkey we don't know which peak it was. Explorers searching for the remains of the ark can find much biblical data 
to help them. But now in later years, this seventh month was very special to the Jews. For during that month, they ushered in the new year with the Feast of Trumpets, and they celebrated the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> you can find that in Leviticus uh, 23. So the Hebrew text says that the ark came to rest, remi reminding us that Noah's name means rest and that his father Lamech had hoped. He had hoped that his son would bring rest to a weary world. See Genesis 5.28. So though the ark had rested safely, Noah was waiting for the Lord to tell him what to do. And he waited 40 days, and then he sent out the raven. And being an unclean eating bird, as it says in Leviticus 11, it felt right at home among this floating carcasses. So Noah waited a week, and then he sent out a dove, which, being a clean bird, found no place to land. So it returned to the ark because it found no place to land. See Genesis 8. And then a week later, Noah sends the dove out again. And when the dove returned with a fresh olive leaf, Noah knew that the plants were growing and fresh life had appeared on the earth. You can find that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. So a dove bearing an olive branch is a familiar symbol in our world of peace. Uh, around the world, actually, that is a symbol of peace. So a week later, when Noah sent the dove out the third time, it didn't return. So he knew that the water had dried up. Now Noah had built a window, or you might call it a hatch, in the upper deck of the ark in verse or verse 9 in chapter 8 it reads sometimes reads covering rather than window and this he opened so he could survey the world around him and see what was going on and this was on the day that the passengers had been in the ark one entire year that's a long time to be cooped up not only with each other but with animals I would think, anyway. It might have been fun, though. So Noah saw that the ground, indeed, it was dry, but he didn't make a move out of the ark until the Lord told him to leave. He was waiting on the instruction of the Lord. 26 days later, that order came, and he obeyed it in verse 15. So God rewards faith, faith in see chapter 15 through 19 Noah was a man of faith whose name is recorded in Hebrews 11 along with those um, other heroes of faith in verse 7 he had the faith to walk with God when the people of the world were ignoring and disobeying God he had the faith to work for God and to witness for God when opposition to truth was the popular thing so now that the flood was over, he exercised faith to wait on God before leaving the ark. So after being confined to the ark for over a year, he and his family, they must have been 
really yearning to get back onto dry land into some type of normal living as they would have been used to before they had lived on the ark for a year. But they waited for God's direction. They were they patiently waited for God's direction, waiting on his timing. That's important for us too. Circumstances on the earth looked looked suitable for their disembarking, but but that was not a guarantee that God wanted them to exit immediately and begin their new life just because it looked good to them. Only God really knows. You know, for us even, when we're praying about life changes and things, uh, steps we want to take, we need to have that obedient faith. We need to hear from God. And we need to have that that in, in us that will be willing to wait to hear from Him. We'll be willing and we'll be obedient. Our response to God's Word because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we've got to respond to the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. So was Noah revealing, say, unbelief when he, he sent out the birds or he opened the hatch to, to look at the terrain? I would have to say no, he was simply using available opportunities to gather data. So it isn't wrong to have an understanding of a situation. Just don't lean on your own understanding. And see Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Obeying the will of God involves not only doing the right thing in the right way for the right motive, but it also means doing it at the right time. So we need to be patient and wait upon the Lord. God does not rush us into things, but um, if anything, it would be the enemy who would rush us on anything. So in Psalms 31, it says, My times are in your hands. God rewarded Noah's faith and the faith of his family by caring for them in the ark for over a year and then preparing the earth for them so that they could leave the ark. So God's gone ahead of them. As the Bible says, you know, the Lord goes ahead of us and he makes the way or makes the path clear. He makes the way clear. So in this case, Noah was like a second Adam as he made this new beginning for the human race. The whole world had been washed out by that flood, killed, gone. Only eight people there left in the world, and that was Noah's family. So God had brought the earth out of the waters during creation week, preparing it for Adam and Eve. And now now he had brought the earth through the flood, and he made it ready for Noah and his family. And the Lord Lord gave Noah's family and the animals the same mandate that he had given to the um, given at the beginning to Adam and Eve. He said, "Be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 8:17. So Noah prepared the ark um, as it says in Hebrews 11 verse 4, for the saving of his household. And God was faithful to save his household. There's absolutely no indication in Scripture that Noah, in his witnessing, 
invited others to uh, join him or his family in the ark, but I'm sure I would have to believe that he certainly must have encouraged them to trust God and prepare their own ark. And that's probably what a good lot of them should have been doing if they were believers. But nobody took his message seriously. In the world of that day, they all they ended up perishing. The whole world. I mean, just imagine it. It's hard for me to even imagine it. Here, here it would be like me and Chuck and, and our children, and there's only eight of us, and, and the whole rest of the world disappears. I mean, just try to picture that in your mind, how, how that would feel, how emotional that would be. How, how many questions would come to your mind even. But God apparently had prepared Noah very well for this day and his faith was up there. He believed, he knew everything was of God. He was not walking in fear, thankfully. So what was it that caused the population to reject God's word anyway and perish? What was wrong with these people? They were like the people in our Lord's parable in Luke 14, 16 through 24, where who were they were occupied with the ordinary things of everyday life and concerned, uh, unconcerned about eternity. They were not even thinking about eternity. They believed that life would go on as it always had and that nothing would ever change it. Nothing would happen. They said that God wouldn't invade the world or interrupt the scheme of things, but he did. He did. People today have the same attitude concerning the return of the Lord. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 1 Thessalonians 5. So when it comes to saving faith, each of us must trust Jesus personally. We can't be saved by the faith of a substitute. Noah's wife, uh, their three sons, and their three daughter-in-laws were also believers, and they proved it by standing with Noah. They stood with Noah while he, he worked, while he witnessed, and while he was mocked, and then entering the ark in obedience as well. They entered the ark right along with Noah in obedience to the Lord. So then in chapter 8, verse 20, after he stepped out of the ark and stood on the renewed earth, Noah was so filled with gratitude that his first act was to lead his family in worship. That sounds perfectly like how it should have been. He built an altar and he offered some of the clean animals as sacrifices to the Lord. Noah was a balanced believer. He walked with the Lord in loving communion, and he enjoyed his presence. He worked for the Lord in building the ark, and he he witnessed for the Lord as a, quote, 2 Peter 2 and 5, a preacher of righteousness. So while in in the ark, he waited on the Lord for instructions concerning his leaving, and once he was standing on the earth, he worshiped the Lord. Like Abel, he brought God his very best, as it says in Genesis 4.4. And like the Sethite remnant, he called on the name of the Lord in verse 26. The true worship of the Lord had been restored on the earth. in, In the Old Testament days, when you sacrificed a burnt offering, 
You gave the entire animal or bird to the Lord with nothing kept back. You gave it all to him. Leviticus chapter 1. So all was on the altar, verse 9. And that was the biblical law because the, the sacrifice symbolized total dedication to the Lord. And then in a step of commitment, Noah gave himself and his family completely to the Lord. God had graciously protected them. He had brought them through the storm. So it was only fitting, really, that they make themselves available to the Lord to do his will. The description of God, smell, quote, in Genesis 8:21, smelling the pleasant aroma, is a human way of stating a divine truth. God was satisfied with the sacrifice. God accepted the sacrifice, and he was pleased with his people, and he was pleased with their worship. See Leviticus 1.9. So if God refused to smell the fragrance of the offering, it meant that he was displeased with the worshipers. So then in... New Testament language, the sacrifice speaks of Jesus Christ offering himself up for us. And let me see, quote, and we're quoting Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice of God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So in and of ourselves, you know, we cannot please God. We can't please him by what we are or what we do, but by faith. We can be accepted in Jesus Christ. The Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased in Matthew 3:17. And those who put their faith in Jesus are quote in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5:17. And when the Father looks at them, he sees the righteousness of his Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Believers are accepted in the beloved Son who is well-pleasing to the Father. So we are accepted in him, in Christ. Amen. We're not accepted in ourselves for sure. There's nothing in us. The Bible says there no good thing dwells in us. It's the blood of Christ. It's what Jesus did for us. It's us believing in what Jesus did for us that makes us well-pleasing to the Father. So like the ark that saved Noah and his family, Jesus went through the storm of God's judgment, of God's judgment for us. Jonah, who is a type of Christ in death, burial, and resurrection, as it says in Matthew 12, verse 38 through 40, he went through the storm of God's wrath because of his disobedience. But Jesus went through the storm in obedience to God's will. So Jesus could say, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me, as he did in Psalms 42 and 7, and even as Jonah said in 2 verse 3, our Lord's suffering on the cross was the baptism Jesus referred to in Luke 12, verse 50. And that was pictured when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And then God reaffirms the 
natural order in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. The Lord didn't speak these words to Noah. He spoke them to himself in his own heart. It was his gracious response to Noah's faith. So not only Noah's faith, but his obedience and his worship. So God promised the ground would not be cursed anymore. In verse 21, God had cursed the ground because of Adam's sin and had added a further curse because of Cain's sin. So God's promise recorded here didn't invalidate either of those curses. And they won't be removed. They will not be removed until Jesus returns and God's people dwell in the holy city. Revelations 22, verse 3. But in his grace, God decided not to add to man's affliction. No more universal floods, as in verse 21. God also determined that there would be a no future floods, right? God's reason given in verse 21 has been variously explained, and our, our explanation depends to some degree on, on your translation of the text. Did God say, quote, for the imagination of man's heart is evil? Or did he say, quote, even though every inclination of his heart is evil? The Lord had originally sent the flood because of the evil hearts of the people. Chapter 6, verse 5. So he, he, he not to end another judgment, he would make it look like the flood was a mistake or a failure or that God had had given up on the human race created in his own image if we translated it 821 quote with a four then we have God saying you know the human heart is incurably wicked the flood wiped out the transgressors but it couldn't change the hearts so then to have another judgment won't solve the problem. So if we translate it even though, then we have God saying, yes, they deserve judgment because their hearts are wicked. And to persist in sin and not learn their lesson from this flood only shows how evil they are. But then in grace, I will not send another flood, he said, or curse the ground. So perhaps both are true. The important thing is that God spoke these words in response to Noah's sacrifice. And that sacrifice was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ in Hebrews 10 and Ephesians chapter 5. So on the basis of the atonement accomplished by Jesus on the cross, God could say this, a, a price has been paid for the sins of the world, and I can withhold judgment. Justice has been met. My law has been upheld, and I can show grace to a lost world. I will not send another flood, and I will not wipe out the human race. Instead, I will offer them a great salvation. So this doesn't mean that God doesn't judge sin today or that there will be no future 
judgment of the world because Romans 8 Romans 1 verse 18 makes it clear that God's judgment is being revealed against sinners right now through the consequences of their sins God gave them over to their own sinful bondage and gave them up to the consequences of their sins in their in their own bodies so one of the greatest judgments God can send to sinners is to let them have their own way and then pay for it in their own lives. So that's the judgment the world is experiencing right now. There will be a future global judgment, but not a judgment of water. It'll be a judgment of fire, Second Peter chapter 3. No interruption of the cycle of nature, verse 22. The flood had interrupted the normal cycle of the seasons for a year, but that would never be repeated. Instead, God reaffirmed that the rhythm of days and weeks and seasons would continue as long as the earth endured. So without this guarantee, us or mankind could never be sure of having the necessities of life. We know now that the steady cycle of days and nights and weeks and months and seasons and years is maintained by the rotation of the earth on its axis and the orbit of the earth around the sun. God made it that way so that his universe would operate effectively. Although there there were myriads of galaxies to choose from, the Lord chose to pour his love and grace down upon the inhabitants of the earth. So the Bible says in Psalms 24:1, the earth is the Lord's. The Lord so arranged the universe that the things on earth might be maintained, and this includes men and women who too often forget God's care. The guarantee in Genesis 8:22 gives us hope. It gives us courage as we face an unknown future. And each time we go to bed for the night or or turn the calendar to a new month, we should be reminded that God is concerned about planet Earth and its inhabitants. So with the invention of the electric light and the modern means of transportation and communication, our world has moved away from living by the cycles of nature established by God. We no longer go to bed at sundown and get up at sunrise. And if we don't like the weather where we are, we can quickly move to a different climate. But if God were to, say, dim the sun, rearrange the seasons, or tilt the earth at at a different angle, our lives would be in jeopardy. God invites us to live a day at a time. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Give us this day our daily bread in Matthew 6. And to be thankful for it. And then also it says, As your days, so shall your strength be. In Deuteronomy 33 and Matthew chapter 6. So when his disciples warned Jesus not to go to Bethany, he replied, Are there not 12 hours in the day? 
in John 11 verse 9 and then he obeyed the father's schedule and lived a day at a time trusting the father to care for him God's uh, covenant of day and night is especially meaningful to the people of Israel because it guarantees them his care and his protection so that they will never cease to be a nation Jeremiah 33:19. So God's promise that he will not send another flood is assurance to the Jews that his covenant with them will never be broken. It's Isaiah 54, verse 7 through 10. We are prone to take for granted sunrise and sunset and the changing face of the moon and the changing seasons we are we do take that for granted but all of these all of these functions of the earth are but evidences that God is still on the throne and he's keeping his promises to us all creation preaches a constant sermon day after day season after season that assures us of God's loving care. So we can trust his word, for there is not failed one word of his promise. See 1 Kings 8, verse 5, or verse 56, excuse me. Okay, I had a few notes here the end of this chapter I'm going to go ahead and read them beginning with Exodus the Jews had both civil and religious calendars the civil year began in the seventh month of Tishri on mid-September to mid-October but the religious year started with Passover the 14th day of Nisan Exodus 12 2 so our mid-March to mid-April but Nisan would be the seventh month of the civil year, and that 17th day of the seventh month would be three days after Passover, the day our Lord's, of our Lord's resurrection. So this explains why Peter associated the ark with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 3. For the ark rested on Ararat on the date of our Lord, on the date that he arose from the dead. And ever since, the days of the church fathers, preachers have seen the two birds as illustrations of the two natures and two appetites in the child of God, the flesh and the spirit, Galatians 5. 16 through 26, the dove certainly typifies the Spirit of God in Matthew 3, verse 18. And then God's concern is for the salvation and devotion of the entire family, and that's why he instructed the Jewish fathers and mothers to teach the word to their children. At Pentecost, Peter declared that God's promise included the children so that they could believe and be saved and Paul gave the same assurance to the Philippian jailer we cannot believe 
for our children, but we can prepare the way for our children to believe. So, and that's part of our job, our responsibility. The burnt offering also involved atonement for sin and thanksgiving to God. So it was God who proved the scriptures because he commanded Noah to take the clean animals with him onto the ark. <clears throat> and that was in Genesis 7, chapter 2 and 3. So in closing, what we give to God, he has first given to us. First Chronicles um, 29, verse 14. And we don't give to God because he lacks anything, right? God's not lacking. See Psalms 50, verse 7 through 15. Or he, God doesn't need anything. So our giving brings delight to God, but it doesn't enrich God personally. Rather, giving enriches the worshiper. So giving enriches us. Giving is a blessing for us. And rather than giving in, it, it just enriches the worshiper. Go go ahead and check out Philippians 4.18 and I will close there. It is always a blessing to give. To give to God. To give our praises, our worship, our thanks to God. To give to our brothers and sisters. To give to our churches. Just to be a giver. God wants us to be givers. So in saying that, I'm going to say amen for now. And tomorrow, possibly tomorrow, we'll be doing chapter 9. Thank you so much.